Let us pray. Father, we pray you'd send down fire from heaven upon your word this morning so that we might bring that fire to our homes today and this week. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I am so grateful to be here at this church I've been hearing about for years, Christ Church in Waco, Texas. And I, I so much admire, and I'm a little bit envious of this beautiful uh, former Lutheran church, Sacramento liturgical church, now Anglican. You guys are blessed, and you're very blessed to have Father Lee and, and, and all these other priests as your uh, leaders in worship and a life of holiness before the Lord. Love is the most misunderstood word in the world because most people think it's a feeling that they cannot control. It leads many to think that they must divorce their husband or wife because they've lost that love and feeling as the unrighteous righteous brothers told us. But Jesus' shocking command to his disciples to love their enemies suggests that his love is something we are to do regardless of our feelings. Great lesson for marriage, by the way. But if love is the most misunderstood word in the world, religion is the most misunderstood thing in the world. Most people think religion is basically one thing and that all the world religions teach that same one thing. But Jesus' shocking command to his disciples to love their enemies is different from what nearly every other religion in the world teaches. Now let's listen again um, to the way Jesus teaches this shocking command. And I'm going to give a little bit of a different translation um, uh, from what Father Matthew gave, uh, uh, although I won't do as well as he did in his oratory. Uh, but this is my translation from the Greek. But I say to you who are listening, love with sacrificial love your enemies. Do good things to those who hate you. Speak well of those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Now, this is different from what nearly every other religious founder taught. Confucius said enemies are to receive not love, but correction. The Buddha said to stay away from the wicked and to remain detached from this world, which would preclude any close engagement with our enemies. Muhammad, in the Quran, and particularly the Hadith, teaches Muslims not to befriend non-Muslims and to kill those who are enemies of the faith. Now, although contemporary Jews in the wake of the Holocaust think it's foolish to forgive those who want to kill you, ancient Jewish teaching was probably at the root of what Jesus developed further. So the wisdom of Jesus, the son of Sirach, which we Anglicans read in our lectionary, also known as Ecclesiasticus, says to forgive your neighbor's injustice, 
hate not your neighbor and overlook their faults. That's Ecclesiastes 27 and 28. Now the Essenes down by the Dead Sea, um, contemporaries of Jesus and Paul, in their community rule said of themselves, I will repay no one with evil. I will, I will visit all men with good, for God judges all things that live, and he will repay. Now, these ancient Jews in, in, in the third through the first centuries, uh, uh, third century B.C. through the first century A.D., were no, were no doubt developing the Old Testament suggestions which Jesus, in fact, inspired by his spirit, that sons of the God of Israel are not to treat enemies um, the way the rest of the world treats their enemies. Proverbs, uh, for example, teaches that if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat, and if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. Say not, I will do to him as he's done to me, Proverbs 24. And, and Psalm 37, which we, we just recited, tells us why we are to treat our enemies this way. Because we know God will deal with the wicked. One day God will cut off, as Psalm 37 says, the evildoers. But Jesus takes it further. He takes these Old Testament movements and pushes them even further in a radical direction. He also gets quite concrete. To the one who hits you on the one cheek, he says, offer him the other. Now, as many scholars have observed, this probably means the back of the hand, which means contempt, just as it does today. And it probably refers to the early followers of Jesus who were in the synagogues, who were thrown out of the synagogue by the non-Messianic Jews, leaders of the synagogue. Then Jesus says, and from the one who grabs your outer garment, don't withhold your undergarment. And so, if someone takes your coat, be willing to give your shirt. Or if someone takes your shirt, be willing to give your undershirt. Then Jesus says, to everyone who asks you give, and from the one who takes your things, don't demand them back. Now, how do we interpret this? If we took it, these words, this particular command, literally, we'd be naked and destitute. But this might be one of the many places where Jesus is more, I would say, a prophet and a poet and does not intend to be taken literally, as poets do not intend to be taken uh, literally, just as when Jesus said we should gouge out our eyes if our eyes cause us to sin. Jesus, I would say, was speaking poetically there and was not intending his listeners to take him literally at that point. So perhaps by this particular part of the text, Jesus means two things. Number one, we should give alms to the poor over and above our tithe. That's a very Jewish teaching. And two, if we are wronged, we should not seek retribution, but we should pray for the forgiveness of the wrongdoer, just as Jesus did from the cross, pray for those who were crucifying and torturing him. Then Jesus states the attitude that we should take toward everyone, including our enemies, the teaching that has since only the 16th century been known as the golden rule. 
just as you wish men would do to you, do to them likewise. Now, many have rightly, in my opinion, pointed out what this is not. Jesus is not saying that we should do good to others so they would do good to us. I mean, realistically, if we do good to our enemies, they're probably not going to return the favor. No, Jesus makes it clear in these next verses that this is how the world works. I scratch your back so that you'll scratch mine. That's easy, Jesus is saying. Everyone does that already. No, he says, and here, here Jesus continues, if you love those who love you, what grace do you have? That's literally what the Greek is. What grace do you have? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what grace do you have? Even sinners do the same. And if you loan to those you hope to get back from, what grace do you have? Even sinners loan to sinners so that they might receive the same things back. But Jesus says the real lesson for the golden rule has to do with the way God treats people. God gives his good gifts not only to those who love him, but also to those who hate him. So we are to love our enemies because this is the way God treats his enemies. Um, Jesus continues, but, but love your enemies and do good to them, even loaning while expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and to the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. So Jesus says we are to practice the golden rule, even and especially to our enemies, not because it's going to help us. It might not help us. It might even hurt us. But because, but we should practice the golden rule to our enemies because that's the way God treats his enemies, and we are to imitate God. Now, the fathers, those, those of you who have read the fathers, you, you know the fathers repeat this over and over again, that the, basically the whole Christian life, uh, the fathers wrote, is the imitatio dei, the imitation of God, to live like God lives. Now, it might help us to remember that we were God's enemies before the Spirit joined us to the Jewish Messiah, whose death reconciled us to the Father. And what does reconciled mean? It means before this happened, we were enemies of the Father, and then we became friends of the Father and of his Son. So our status changed from, becoming, from being an enemy at one time to becoming a friend only because Jesus loved us when we were his enemies, forgiving us even though by our sins, according to the New Testament, we participated in Jesus' torture and crucifixion. We were loved when we were enemies. Therefore, we should love our enemies with that same love with which we were loved. You know, this is what I saw Anglicans in Joss, Nigeria do last summer when I was there. Um, even while Boko Haram was and is trying to murder them. Just in the last 12 months, Boko Haram, those are radical Muslims uh, who have enlisted the Fulani tribe of herdsmen, um, Muslims, to target Christians and 
kill them. And they've killed 20,000 since 2001. Uh, no, no, I'm sorry, closer to 100,000 since 2001. And, and they've driven 2 million people out of their homes. 2 million. Mark Mukan is a, one of the bravest men in the world. He's an Anglican priest, a Nigerian Anglican priest, and I became his friend when I was there this past um, summer. He drove me around. Mark Mukan is a father of seven, like your father, Lee. Um, and by the way, almost all the Anglicans I met there, all the Anglican priests and catechists and deacons and the people in their churches, they all, almost all of them, have only enough money to eat one meal a day. There's not a whole lot of obesity in, in Nigeria. In fact, there's hardly any. One meal a day, including Mark Mukan. One meal a day for his family of nine, seven kids. So, I, so Mark, Mark Mukan, now I said he's one of the bravest men in the world because he is planting a church. I mean, he's started many churches. He is planting a church right now in the village in northern Nigeria that is the headquarters of Boko Haram. I mean, he could be killed any day. I said, Mark, how can you do that? Aren't you afraid? He said, he said Jerry, sometimes, yes. But how can I not do it when Jesus has shown such love to me? Really, to love our enemies is impossible in the natural, unless... Jesus lives his life by the Spirit, by his Spirit, through us and in us. Now, this is one way that I, in my own life, I have found Jesus' law to be grace. Where law is not the opposite of gospel, but law becomes gospel, law, in fact, becomes grace, and law is grace. And let me explain. Years ago, now I taught for 26 years at Roanoke College in Virginia. I taught undergraduates. And years ago, after about six, seven years in the faculty, it came up time for me to go up for tenure. And a powerful professor on campus did everything she could to make sure I would not get tenure. I got tenure. And after I got tenure, I could not forgive this woman, which made things awkward because her office was right down the hall from mine, and I saw her almost every day. I had to greet her in the hall. I could not get the videotapes out of my head of all the things she had said and she was going to do. And, and, and I knew she was working on campus to turn people against me so I wouldn't get tenure. And these videotapes, which I could not turn off, they kept playing and playing, filled me with anger and bitterness. And it's not fun to walk around with bitterness. By 2 o'clock in the afternoon, you're emotionally exhausted and you've still got hours to live. Now, 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 probably none of you have ever gone through this, so you can't relate. Uh, until one day, I came upon this command of Jesus, pray for those who mistreat you. And when I started praying for this woman, the terrible weight of resentment lifted off my shoulders, and gradually, over, over the next periods, over the next months, I became free from hatred from my enemy, and the videotape stopped. Thank God. Jesus' command to pray for those who mistreat you, his law became grace, became gospel, became grace for me. Law can be grace. It doesn't have to be opposed to gospel. 
Now, you might be asking one of two questions that many, many, many Christian readers over the centuries, particularly since the Reformation, have asked, and, and, and particularly now in the last 50 years, have asked. No, make that the last 20 years. No, make that the last 10 years, ha have asked. If God loves his enemies, doesn't this mean that God, no, no, I'm sorry, that's the second question. If, if God loves his enemies, and we're supposed to do the same, love our enemies, does, does this mean that we could never support or participate in war or capital punishment? Um, because don't both of these things mean fighting or, 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 or punishing our enemies? And here's the second question. If God loves his enemies, uh, doesn't this mean that God could never send anyone to hell? Um, because doesn't that mean that God would be hating his enemies? Now, this is a homily. It's not a catechesis lesson, so it's, I'm almost done. Don't worry. I'm only going to give a hint, since it's a homily, of an answer to both these questions. Just a hint. I'd say far more if I had time. Pacifists say yes to the first question. Uh, they say, obviously, Jesus' teaching here rules out participation in war or capital punishment for a Jesus follower, and they typically turn to their principal proof text, which is in the parallel passage in, in Matthew 5, where Jesus says, do not resist the evildoer, which actually some of my scholar friends in Jerusalem tell me is, is a bad Greek translation of Psalm 37, 1, which we just recited, which is, do not fret over the evildoer. Very different meaning, obviously. And war and capital punishment clearly resists the evildoer. So if we're not supposed to resist the evildoer, then clearly we can't participate in war or capital punishment or support war or capital punishment. And, and even the so-called just wars like World War II. Let, let me just give a hint here. Jesus himself offered verbal resistance when he was struck on the face by an officer of the high priest in John 18. And Jesus replied with, with anger, if what I said was right, why are you hitting me? Jesus defended himself. In Matthew 21, Jesus tells a parable of a vineyard owner who will seize wicked tenants who were murderers and will quote, now these are Jesus' words, put those, excuse me, put those wretches to a miserable death, close quote. That's meek and mild Jesus saying that. In John 17, Jesus says that all the Old Testament is truth, which must include those many passages in the Old Testament where the God of Israel tells his people to go to war. And so in other words, God loves his enemies, but he also executes justice toward his enemies when they are, in a manner of speaking, asking for it. And on the question of whether an eternal hell would contradict God's love for his enemies, Jesus seems not to think so. For of all the writers in the Bible, of all the speakers in the Bible, the greatest hellfire and damnation preacher is meek and mild Jesus. He talks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible, far more than Paul. 
In Jesus' famous parable of the sheep and the goats, for example, he says that those on the left of the Son of Man who ignored his calls to feed the hungry and clothe the naked, quote, will go away into eternal punishment, eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Not everyone, in other words, will have the same eternal destiny. Some will remain as enemies of God forever. Jesus loved his enemies, but some of them wanted to remain his enemies forever. And Jesus suggests that he will give them what they want. So what about us this week? I think the best way to apply all this is for me to apply all this is simply to repeat the words of Jesus in closing. Love with sacrificial love your enemies. Do good things to those who hate you. Speak well of those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Love your enemies and do good to them. Even loaning while expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Amen. Thank you.